Acts chapter 7, verse 57. Would you stand with me as we read these words? A great, great passage. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Let's pray together. Father, we ask and pray that you would teach us from this powerful day in history. Your purpose, your plan, your redemption, and your glory. We see in all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Today we continue with our series entitled Acts, 30 Years That Changed the World. Last week, we looked at the growth of the early church and some challenges that happened as a result. And from those challenges, we saw the, uh, the election of the very first deacon body. Today, we're going to see the church expand beyond Jerusalem and as it begins to go out through the world. And in the middle of that, the catalyst of that, we see one of the most significant events in Christian history as it unfolds. So today's message is entitled, When God Calls. When God Calls. In the passage I just read in Acts 7, Stephen was brought before the Sanhedrin. And if you remember, this was the third time a believer in Christ was brought before the Sanhedrin. The same Sanhedrin, now the Sanhedrin was the, were the religious leaders. It was, again, kind of like Congress of the day. Uh, you had Democrats and Republicans there. They weren't called Democrats and Republicans. They were called Sadducees and Pharisees, and they had a difference uh, of opinion theologically. The Sadducees did not believe in a heaven or a hell. They didn't believe in an afterlife or a soul, but they were still theologians. Interestingly enough, they certainly believed in God and his sovereignty, where the Pharisees, they believed in heaven, hell, the, the body had a spirit, and all those kinds of things. And so those are very different uh, theological viewpoints, and they didn't get, get along with each other a lot of the time, but they made up the, the, the religious and the legal body uh, for accountability in the nation of Israel. They are, the, they are the same ones that tried and condemned Jesus. And then uh, after Jesus, after his resurrection and his ascension, then came in Peter, if you remember that great story when Peter and John were going through uh, the gate uh, into the temple courts and there was a man that was uh, begging, he was crippled for life, everybody knew him and uh, Peter, God through Peter, res uh, not resurrected the man, uh, healed the man so that he got up and started running and jumping in the temple courts. And so they brought Peter and the disciples into the Sanhedrin to talk to them and to scold them. And there wasn't much they could do because that guy was standing right there beside them. So uh, first there was Christ in his mock trial and then a mock trial for Peter and the apostles. The third time, Peter and the apostles were brought back again. And this time the Sanhedrin had them scourged, had them beaten. And of course, as I shared with you last week, we looked at that last week, 
the apostles walked out of, after getting beaten rejoicing <laughs> because they, they felt worthy, God saw them worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And so the persecution is getting worse and worse and worse. And now we have yet another encounter before the Sanhedrin. This time it is with Stephen and it results in his death. I told you last time, Stephen really seemed to be uh, determined for, for this outcome. He wanted to help them along. I guess he, you might say it that way. First of all, he gives his defense. They, they accused him of uh, blasphemy against, uh, against the law of Moses and against the temple. And so he gives them this very lengthy discourse, much longer than Peter's sermons. And he lets them have it. I mean, he just, he just becomes an old school evangelist on them. And he said, you, you murdered all of the, you persecuted all of the prophets before, and now you killed Jesus. And, and then he looks up, and this is why they're so mad. You see this in verse 57, at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. I remember when I was a little kid, I had two brothers and two sisters, and one of them was saying something I didn't like. I would cover my ears and start going, la, 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 la. Well, that's what the Sanhedrin's doing. They're covering their ears and they're yelling because they just can't stand what he's saying. What is he saying? Well, what, what Stephen actually said was he looked up and God gave him this vision. So God knew what was going to happen. He sees God on his throne and he said, oh, look, there's God. And right on his right hand side is Jesus. And when they heard that, they just flipped out drug him out and began to stone him. So we see that here in this passage uh, where they were so mad. Now, two important things happened as a result of this particular event. And they are critical to understand before we, or as we look at the rest of the book of Acts. Acts really takes off today. It has been in and around Jerusalem until today, but immediately God begins to share his word elsewhere. And this is how he does it. And that's the first thing that we see, the good news spread beyond Jerusalem. If you look in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, immediately it says this, On that day, not in six months or six years or in two weeks, but that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, that may sound like bad news, but it's not bad news at, God, at all. God used the death of Stephen for his glory and his sovereign purpose because we see that in verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The gospel of Jesus Christ must be shared. And God will do whatever he needs to do in your life and my life. He will do whatever he needs to do among his people, his church, to see to that, that we do what we're supposed to do and that is share the gospel with every corner of the earth. That's what we're here for. We're not here just for Azel. Begins in Azel, share in Azel, but God has called us to go way beyond Azel throughout all of the earth. And so we see that in this passage. The, the spreading of the gospel actually is, a, of course, a major theme in the New Testament. Here in the book of Acts, for example, Acts chapter 13, verse 49 says this, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. And again, Acts 19, verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. We see that concept of, of the gospel of, of Christ spreading and spreading and spreading because God wants the world to know. 
by the way, that God's desire is the same for us. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, Saul, who is now called the Apostle Paul, writes to the church in Thessalonica many years later, and he says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. He says to the readers, the gospel of Jesus Christ was spread to you. Now pray for us as we spread it even further across the world. Let me ask you, when was the last time you shared your faith in Jesus Christ with someone? If you're new here, you may be asking, what exactly is the good news of Jesus Christ? What is the gospel? The word gospel, and I know most of you know this, is a Greek word, and it simply means good news. Whatever it is, the, the story of Jesus Christ is good news. And it may not sound like it because he got killed, he, he was executed falsely and, and put on a cross and then put in a tomb for three days. That doesn't sound like good news, but in fact it is because Jesus died on purpose. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was in control of the whole situation all the time. He could have stopped it at any moment. He didn't want to stop it because that's why he came to this world. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Watch this definition. I know it's a little clip, but I, I love the definition. Listen closely to the words that he says in this clip. What is the gospel? It's the most important question you could ever ask with the most significant answer you could ever receive. The gospel is an announcement. It's not good advice, it's good news. Good news about freedom and forgiveness for bad and broken people. The gospel is not something you do for God, but something he did for you. The gospel is simple yet profound. So basic that even a child can comprehend it. Yet so deep that no scholar, author, or philosopher could ever uncover the full scope of its depth and riches. The gospel is beautiful. It is light in your darkness, strength in your weakness, hope in your hurting, grace for your guilt, mercy for your misery, healing for your soul, joy for all people. The gospel is shocking. Innocence in the place of righteousness, holiness in the place of shame, son of God in the place of sinful man, God without honor, Lord without breath. The gospel is about Jesus Christ, born in a manger and raised by a carpenter tempted by Satan but filled with the Spirit, baptized by his cousin and affirmed by his father, questioned by leaders but loved by outsiders, befriended by sinners betrayed by his friend, respected by some, rejected by most, crucified for all, buried in a borrowed grave, resurrected on the third day. The gospel is a gift, costly for God but free to you. Salvation is not a reward for the righteous but a gift for the guilty. It cannot be earned and it cannot be lost. The gospel is about grace. No one is so good that they don't need it, and no one is so bad they can't have it. The gospel is not just a clean slate. It's a final verdict. Not guilty. The gospel is about strength that no enemy can defeat, peace that no suffering can steal, hope that no storm can wash away. My hope is built on nothing less and nothing more than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The gospel is about God. He is infinite and unparalleled. He is strong and gentle. He's the King of heaven, Lord of armies, the healer of hearts, and the light of the world. The gospel is about you. Your move. Not clean up your act, but come as you are. Because Christianity isn't acting like you have it all together, but admitting that you don't. 
That is the gospel. I like what he says. He says, the gospel is not a clean slate. It is a final verdict, not guilty. That's very powerful and very true. So that is the gospel. And that is the same gospel that Stephen shared with the Sanhedrin. It's the same gospel that began to make its way out of Jerusalem and throughout the world. I want you to see, first of all, or next, that we are introduced to a young man named... Saul. Did you see that? Did you note that? In our passage in the beginning, it says that he was young, however young is. And then he says his name was Saul. Now, Saul, if you're new here, Saul and Paul are the same person. God changes his life, changes his spirit, changes his heart, and even changes his name. And so a young man named Saul, who hates Christians, becomes the Apostle Paul and the writer of much of the New Testament. We just read that Saul was there, uh, that Saul was there at the stoning of Stephen. Now look with me in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Now, that doesn't sound good at all, does it? It doesn't sound like he's neutral, and he just happened to be there when Stephen was stoned, and he was just a, an observer, and it was okay. He sees this event, and it changes him. He now has a mission, and his mission is to kill as many Christians as possible to end this Christianity as they knew it. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now, get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So Saul receives God's call. You have to notice, Saul is the antithesis of a missionary. In fact, he's a missionary, to, and he's on a mission to end Christianity, Instead of helping Christians, he's there to kill them and imprison them. Instead of building the church, he's out to destroy it. And so he goes to the Sanhedrin and he asks for letters. He asks for formal permission that he can go out and persecute Christians elsewhere. And so that's what he does. He is the anti-Christian missionary. The first one, really, who left Jerusalem, not even the Sanhedrin did that. They, they, they didn't like Christians either, and they were more than happy to kill them. We see that with Stephen and his stoning, but Saul is zealous against Christ. Of course, he's about to meet his match here. So he decides that he wants to go to Damascus. He doesn't even know, but he wants to find out, are there believers that have made it to Damascus? If they are, I'm going to go there, start there, and bring them back so they can be persecuted. And by persecuted, of course, he wants them killed. So his intent is their death. So on the road to Damascus, 
Jesus shows up, <laughs> has a conversation with Saul. Now, Jesus is the last person Saul is expecting to see because Paul, uh, excuse me, Paul, Saul, does not believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He doesn't think Jesus is alive. So when this voice blinds him and says, I'm Jesus, imagine what a shock that was to Saul. And so Jesus tells him, you're going to go there. I want you to go to Damascus, and then I'll tell you what to do. <laughs> and he's blind, so his helpers have to help him into Damascus, and he's staying there at a house in Damascus. You remember the story. After three days, he's blind, can't see anything. He's just waiting. He doesn't know probably what to do, what's going on. He's trying to process the fact that he has an encounter with his Savior, the very one he was persecuting. And God comes to one of his prophets there in Damascus, a man named Ananias. And he says to the prophet Ananias, he says, there's a guy here and gives him his address. He's over on this street in this house. He says, I want you to go there and place your hands on him. Now, the, the response, you know, God has a plan, but the response of Ananias implies that Ananias doesn't know God's plan. So what does Ananias try to do? He tries to update God because God has not received the memo about what an awful person Saul is. And so he wants to educate God, which is always funny when we try to educate God, is it not? Look with me in Acts chapter 9, verse 13. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard that many, uh, many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Now, let me stop right there. What do you think he's, in a nutshell, trying to say to God? It's a no-go. Don't send me to that guy's house. Maybe you didn't hear. He's terrible. He's awful. He's just going to kill me. And so Ananias may be afraid for his own life, but I think also Ananias is saying, you got the wrong guy. This is the bad guy. We're the good guys. He's the bad guy. You don't want me to go there, Lord. So again, he's trying to change the mind of God. Verse 15. Doesn't work, by the way. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he su must suffer for my name. So God says to Ananias, Ananias, you don't know the plan. Saul doesn't know the plan. In fact, nobody knows the plan at this point except God. And the first person God tells on this planet about his marvelous plan of salvation through Saul as his great missionary, the first person to realize it, is Ananias. Ananias doesn't know this, but he's in heaven right now. At this point, he doesn't know one day he's going to be in heaven telling everybody, I was the first person that found out. God told me before he told anybody else about Saul, and I was all for it. <laughs> well, he won't say it in heaven. There's no lying in heaven. But, but what a privilege, what an honor it is. And surely Ananias would look back in future years after he sees the, the miracles and the amazing spread of the gospel through Paul and the churches that are planted. Ananias, this great moment in his life is that he got to be the one to go tell him. Now, God could have easily sent an angel instead of Ananias. Why not? Why not just send an angel? 
You could send Gabriel or the archangel Michael to his house and put his hands on them. But God chose to use a human being, one of his own prophets, called by his name, to do that very thing. You know, it may be God is trying to drag you somewhere to do something. But it's the best thing that will ever happen to you. Don't resist it. Don't resent it. Embrace it. Relish it, as Ananias no doubt did in the future. We also see in this passage that Paul obeyed, or Saul obeyed. Look with me in Acts chapter 9, uh, verse uh, 19. By the way, back in verse 16, that last sentence, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. God says this to Ananias. Paul's going to suffer. Don't, don't you worry. He's going to suffer. <laughs> but how much he suffered, it isn't up to you. It's up to me. And I'm going to show him. All right, with that, Acts 9, 19. Saul sent, uh, spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. You talk about a blind side. He had gone there to, to slander Christ. He had gone there to arrest Christians and persecute them. And he shows up at the synagogue and they already know he's coming. We're going to find out. They already know he's coming. And they're thinking, oh boy, Paul's here. Or excuse me, Saul's here. He's going he's to get these dirty Christians. He's going to put a stop to this. We'll never hear about Christians ever again. And instead, what does he do? He starts preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, you can imagine the look on their face. I would love to, to see a video of that as their face dropped when he started saying that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And so um, uh, verse 21, and all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? In other words, dude, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're supposed to be our guy, not preaching against us. And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Verse 22, yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. We see two callings on the life of Saul, and it is the same two callings God will put on your life and my life. Two callings. The first was a call to salvation because God could not use Saul for his glory in the way that he wanted until Saul got saved. And so God gave him an offer he almost couldn't refuse. He shows up in person and Christ speaks to him. Saul heard the voice of the resurrected Christ. Didn't see him. He saw a light and the light blinded him for three days, but he did hear the voice of Christ talk to him. So he knows the voice of Christ. Christ gives him a call. Saul could have said, no, nah, I'm going to pass. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't think that's going to go over well with the Sanhedrin. I have these other plans and this message with my other plans. Saul could have done that. It would have been a tragedy for him. God could have used anybody. Could have used anybody. He chose Saul, called Saul, and to his credit, Saul responded. He accepted the call. He accepted the call of salvation. And that call is the same for you and me and every Christian in history. It may be for you today, you've never accepted that call. God has called you 
to fulfill your purpose in life, the reason that he created you to bring glory to him through Christ. Will you accept that call? It was a very real call in, in Saul's life, and he accepted that call. I'll give him credit for that. And then there's a second call. Saul, all, all Saul knows is that he had a conversation with Jesus. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He has no idea that he's going to be the author of most of what's going to become the New Testament. He has no idea that he's going to plant churches all over Asia Minor. He has no idea how many thousands, millions, and through the, the letters that he wrote, ultimately billions of people will come to faith in Christ because of those letters. He doesn't know. He has no idea of the scale of God's purpose in his life. You don't know either. The first calling was the call to accept Christ. The second calling was the call to be used by Christ. What if I told you in heaven, you may be shocked when you find out that God had called you to do something way beyond your ability and you said no, thinking it was no big deal, thinking God wouldn't call you, God wouldn't use you. You're no Billy Graham. Neither am I, by the way. He was Billy Graham in the beginning. <laughs> but you may be shocked and stunned at what God intended to do with you. Will you accept the call? I'm going to show you a little documentary. It's, it's brief for a documentary, but it's important. I know that those who are older in our congregation, I guess my age or so and up, you know well the life and ministry of Billy Graham. But there are many people that are in the younger generation that don't know anything about him other than his name. And his calling, God's calling on Billy's Graham, Billy Graham's life is really very profound. It's going to start with a black and white clip of him preaching in the streets of New York City. Now you think about a street preacher today in, in Times Square. Maybe 10 or 15 people will watch. Half of them are ridic ridiculing him or heckling him. That's not the case with Billy Graham. It's like the entire city of New York showed up to listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ. My prayer for New York is what you're about to see one day will happen again. Watch this clip. This is 42nd Broadway, New York City, overlooking Times Square. ABC TV news cameras are on the scene to report history as it's made in this culmination of 16 weeks of the Billy Graham New York Crusade. It has been said Times Square has been one of the What a thrilling and wonderful sight this is. I wish that those that were sharing the service by television could see what I see. Billy Graham was affectionately known as America's pastor. He had quickly become a national sensation. You say, but Billy, I'm different. I don't think religion takes with me. I don't think I'm the kind. But his unlikely journey began far from the glaring lights. Every afternoon as Billy came through the door, Mother, those were his first words, and I knew Billy was on the premises. 
As a boy growing up on a North Carolina dairy farm, Billy's childhood was about as ordinary as it gets. He read every Tarzan book and then he would go down in the woods and he would try to act out so <laughs> didn't work too well. He and Melvin worked on the dairy farm. Melvin loved the hard work. Billy Frank really didn't like to do physical work. Never did. My brother was interested primarily in two things. That would be baseball and girls. Uh, I'm not sure which order. Even though Billy had grown up in church, as a teenager, he only attended reluctantly. When traveling evangelist Mordecai Ham came to town, it was no surprise that Billy wanted nothing to do with it. When Mordecai Ham came to Charlotte, I thought it was some sort of big circus or a big emotional event, and I didn't have any thoughts about ever going. But a few weeks into the three-month-long revival, Billy Frank's curiosity got the best of him. He hopped on a friend's old pickup and set out to get a glimpse of the fighting preacher. I'd never seen such a large crowd attending a religious meeting, I think three or 4,000 people, and it made a great impression on me. And I decided I wanted to go back the next night, and then the next, and then the next. By that time, I was coming under conviction that I was a sinner, uh, that I needed uh, redemption myself, that I needed Christ in my heart. I was a church member, but I still knew that something was lacking. I knew that I didn't have that personal relationship with Christ. One night when the invitation was given, I just said, Lord, I'm going. And it was on the last verse of the last song that they sang, and about 400 people went forward the night I did. And when I stood there, I thought to myself, what a fool I'm making myself in front of all my friends here. But I knew something had happened. There was a definite turn in his life. We knew then that the Lord had really gotten a hold of him. His emphasis became more on what the preacher had been preaching and, and wanting to know where he could go and learn something about the Bible. Billy's newfound interest, along with his love of sunshine and the great outdoors, eventually led him to enroll in the Florida Bible Institute. While there, he experienced a calling he couldn't deny. I just felt God was speaking to me, and he said, I want to use you. And I put up all the arguments I could that I was not capable and didn't have the proper education. But God was calling me, and I knew that. So I got on my knees right there, and I said, Lord, I'll go where you want me to go, and I'll be what you want me to be. And I said, uh, I'm, I'm yours. Opportunities to speak at local churches slowly emerged, including one that had a profound effect on Billy Graham's ministry. My first sermon in a sort of big church was the First Baptist Church of Venice. I preached on a Sunday morning. I gave an invitation at the end of my talk for people to come forward, and I'd never done that before. And 11 people came. I'll never forget that. And uh, it, it, I was so moved in my own heart that I, I said, Lord, maybe, maybe you have given me a gift that I didn't know, that I can give an invitation and people will come to Christ and I began to give invitations after that. And the scripture says in 2 Corinthians, 
1945, Billy joined Youth for Christ as an evangelist, traveling over a million miles during the next four years. And today, fear, problem, but it was awful hour when God turned his back. The Lord I want to tell you that I know the answer to your problem today. The opportunities for Billy Graham continued to increase in city after city, but he soon faced a dilemma that threatened to derail his emerging ministry. There was this debate going on within his friends that began to question scripture and were questioning why my father believed in the Bible to be the holy inspired word of God. The arguments were that you couldn't really trust the scriptures and that only the old fashioned uh, fundamentalist could uh, trust the scriptures. And I began to think, well, perhaps they're right. Maybe this Bible isn't as authoritative as I thought it was. And I remember how disturbed I was by that because I'd always believed in the Bible. Billy Graham was at a crossroads, wrestling with arguments that carried eternal consequences. He agonized over the dilemma. But Billy continued to study and pray, knowing he could not move on until the issue was settled once and for all. The summer of 1949 would bring him to a watershed moment. I remember many years ago, I went through a terrible struggle intellectually about the Bible. And I was concerned and worried and battling with myself. And I remember going out in the moonlight, out in the forest, and I took this Bible. And I said, Lord, I don't understand all about this Bible. There are many things I cannot explain. And I remember laying the Bible out on a stump. And I said, Lord, this is your book. I'm going to accept it by faith, like I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, and he saved me and changed me and transformed me. I'm accepting this as your word by faith. It was a decision that Billy would later say gave him a lasting, unassailable strength. I remember I used to prepare my sermons by getting a little outline and then tearing up a Bible and, and pasting them under those different points and I just kept quoting the scriptures and saying the Bible says and it had its own built-in power and God honored it. The Bible says I am the Lord, I change not. There at the end you noticed what he said and I found that kind of startling. He would actually tear pages out of the Bible and paste them in his outline for, for the sake of the sermon and for the glory of God. This week, I saw on the news, uh, a young man was reading the Bible publicly uh, in a public place here in the United States, and some radical, angry leftists came and tore pages out of that Bible. Did you know what they did? You didn't see that news? They ate, they ate the pages, ate them. Uh, I'm not sure how that teaches God a lesson. Um, <laughs> You know, but they ate the pages of the Bible just to just to bother or to anger people, I guess. 
Now, my prayer is that person, and there are pictures of that person eating, and so uh, eating the Bible, uh, that, uh, that the call of God is made manifest in their life. I pray that there's a moment where they realize and their eyes are open because Saul would have done the same thing. Saul hated Christians even more. And look what God did through him. My goodness. And so I, I love that testimony of Billy Graham. And I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with this. I have shared my testimony to my congregation from time to time over the years, but I'll say it again for those of you who are new. I was 10 years old when God's call came on my life. Now, I'm no Billy Graham, uh, but I was 10, and it w I was in church on a Sunday morning, born and raised in church. My mom and dad were both Southern Baptists, and every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening, and every Wednesday evening, I was in church, and it was hard on Sunday evening because... That's when the wonderful world of Disney came on back in the 70s. And we didn't ever get to see that because we were in church on Sunday evenings. And I was in church that Sunday morning and I realized for the first time something the preacher said uh, made me realize that there are people in this world who don't believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. As a child, I just assumed that everybody believed that. And if you just assume everybody believes that, there's not much point in going down and making it public because everybody believes that. So at that moment, I realized, oh, there are people who don't, oh, that's what I need to do. Oh, that's why. And so the little lights came on in my head, and I was a little slow. My sister was a year younger. And she also accepted Christ that day uh, as well. We were baptized together. But I remember that was God's calling on my life to accept the salvation that is offered through Christ and him alone. Then when I was about 17, late, late 17, almost 18, um, I began to feel God calling me to be a, a preacher, a pastor, which is, a, I say, odd. There was no pastors in my family line. My dad was a barber. My grandfather was a barber as well. And I was a terrible introvert, uh, and it just wasn't my gift, but it was my calling. And my mom came into my bedroom late one night as I was going to sleep. It was dark, and I could just see her silhouette. She sat down on my bed, a little twin bed there. I, I grew up with two brothers, and all three of us lived in the same bedroom. It was a single-car garage that my father converted into a bedroom, and so she came in and sat down on my little twin bed, and she said, Lee, have you given thought to what you want to do with your life? And I said, yes, God is calling me to be a pastor. And she cried. You know, mom cried a lot. So <laughs> that's where I get my crying is from mom. It wasn't from dad, I assure you. Um, but uh, I don't know if they were tears of joy or tears of sadness. I don't know. Uh, when I told her I wanted to be a preacher, I don't know that was very convincing to anyone, but she loved me, and God's call was on my life at that time. And you may be sitting out there thinking, well, you know, I could never get up in front of people and preach. And I, I understand how you feel. I felt the same way. Or you may be thinking, I'm no Billy Graham, and you may be right, but I want you to know, if you think that you have no abilities and no talents, and cannot be useful to God, you are God's speciality. <laughs> That's who God loves to use most. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says it this way, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. That tells me that the more useless you are, the more God can use you. This world may cast you aside. God will not. This world may tell you you're nothing. God will make you something in Christ. So don't just loiter through this life missing your calling because God's calling is on you today. How will you respond? Pray with me. Father, we come to you today and we acknowledge that we're not worthy of any calling. But we see Saul who hated Christians and wanted to murder them and kill them. He wanted to in the very existence of Christianity in this world. He wanted to stop it before he could really get started. And he was willing to do anything he had to do, passionate, passionately to end Christianity. But your calling was on his life. Changed his heart, his destiny, his purpose, even his name. Because he loved him. He had a purpose for him. Father, I acknowledge that every man, woman, and child here was created by you. They are known by you. And your calling is on their life. You don't want a single one of them to perish. I pray today would be the day of their salvation. That they would come to this realization that they are we are all sinners. We say things or do things or think things every week that dishonor you. We are tempted to go down a dark path in this world and this world is eager to offer it to us, telling us that evil is not evil, but that it is good. Telling us that there's no accountability in this world, that you're not a moral God. You're an outdated principle. Even Billy Graham, we see in the late 40s, was told that by so many people that your word is outdated and not authoritative. He had that moment of crisis, but he realized that the Bible, your word is timeless and powerful and true. And he accepted your hand in his life. As you're praying, no one's looking around. Can I challenge you today? If you're not a believer in Christ, you have not been, I want to challenge you today to step out, come up and say, Pastor, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to do what Saul did. I want to do what Billy Graham did. I want to give my life to Christ. I want to accept that call. For those of you who are already believers, listen to me. God's hand is on you. His call is on you. If he can use the murderous Saul, he can use you. He can use anyone. He's waiting for you to respond to his call and let him do miracles in your life through you for his glory. No one's looking around. Would you stand right where you are? Everyone here. As you stand, as you continue to pray right now, this is your opportunity. This is your chance. You can't say God never called me can't say God never gave me an opportunity. It's here 
It's now. How will you respond? You come.